I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Waiting for you in this hour, it's a director whose writing process includes 700 jumping jacks and Emily Dickinson underwear. It's a musician who wrote a 49-song musical soundtrack for a non-existent movie. And it's the definitive Bruce Springsteen biographer to whom Bruce said... Hey, wait a minute. Who's telling you these tales, man? My mother? Well, I guess she's talking then. It's... It's... Michelle White, Bruce Springsteen biographer Peter Amos Carlin, and music from Ezra Rose. It's all coming up on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister. You also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. We have poet Scott Poole, who is going to watch the show and write a poem about everything that he has learned during the course of the show. And of course, we have music from our house band, led by Ralph Huntley. Thanks, Ralph. Before we move on with the show, we would like to welcome another new station, KSFC 919 Spokane Public Radio. We are especially pleased to be welcoming you, Spokane, because your station is where our house poet, Scott Poole, got his start in radio. So clearly you have excellent taste. Welcome, Spokane. We hope it's not too forward to say that we love you already. As I mentioned earlier, we've got Peter Carlin on the show, and he spent about three years working on what turned out to be the only Bruce Springsteen biography to date, written with the cooperation of Bruce himself. And Peter is an admitted fan. He had unfettered access to Bruce's inner circle, his friends and his family. But most importantly, he got to talk to Bruce, and not just talk to him, but sort of hang out with him a little bit. And he'll talk about what that was like later in the show. But it got me thinking about what it means to meet our heroes. When I was in college, my friend Mimi was obsessed with monologist Spalding Gray. She had come to NYU to study acting because she wanted to be Spalding Gray, which in retrospect is sort of heartbreaking since it appears Spalding Gray didn't even want to be Spalding Gray. And even though she was a terrible photographer, she started working with the college paper so she could get into rock shows for free. And her second assignment was a Spalding Gray performance. And so she went and she shot the performance horribly and then just casually struck up a conversation with someone from Spalding's posse. And a half hour later, she found herself sitting across from Spalding in a bar booth just talking about the nature of storytelling and memoir as theater And that moment changed the way she thought about what was possible in her life forever. And it wasn't because Spalding said anything particularly brilliant or because she and Spalding went to Central Park later and rolled around in piles of fall leaves laughing. They didn't. 
for her, it was about the simplicity and randomness of how it happened. It just, it made her realize that at any given moment in her life, the thing she most wants to happen might just happen without her having to do much of anything, which is a pretty nice way to go through life. But seeing our heroes in person isn't always a happy thing. Steve Allman talks in his book, Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life, about going to see Gil Scott Heron, who he calls the great unsung prophet of American music. And Allman was expecting nothing less than a religious experience at the show, but Heron at the time, he was struggling with drugs and alcohol, and he was a train wreck that night. And he says in the book that he knew that Heron was troubled, but the show was the first time that he actually considered the fact that Heron's compulsion to become one of our greatest social critics might actually have been because of his own internal distress. And it makes sense that sometimes the very reason someone becomes famous is because of what's broken in them. That their particular prophecy or insight or lyricism seems like an attempt to fix the world, but in actuality, they're just trying to fix themselves. And I'm kind of glad that that concert was terrible, and not because I wish for Steve Allman to have terrible live music experiences, because that would be weird. <laughs> but because it turned his idol, this man who created masterpieces, this genius, this prophet, into a human being, which is the first step in realizing that he just might be able to accomplish what Heron had accomplished. Most of us think that people who create great art are in some way magic or at the very least different from us. And yes, most of them have talent, but mostly they're just people who did something terribly and then they did it slightly better and then they did it better than slightly better and then they made something and hated it, but then they did it again and made something else and hated that too and did it again until looking at it didn't make them cringe and then they did it again until they could suddenly breathe and they did it again until they were proud of the thing they made and then still managed to have faith in it when they sat it out into the world and person after person after person squinched up their nose at it because maybe they had a bad latte or a fight with their girlfriend or a hangnail so they keep sending it out into the world in prettier packages until someone sees what they see in it or at the very least what their mother sees in it and maybe <laughs> on second thought all of that is a little bit magic but it's human magic and that's what we learn when we meet our heroes elections are over, there are a lot of things that we'll miss. The partisan bickering, the robocalls, but mostly the political ads. Why do they have to stop when a winner is declared? Well, they don't. The great thing about political ads is that they're so effective, they pretty much work with any product. Bananas. You've been eating them since you were a kid. Yellow, compact, sweet, they seem friendly enough, but have bananas been lying to you? They claim to be a good source of vitamin C. They claim to be easy to pack in your lunch, but have you seen how easily their skin bruises? They might as well be that anemic kid from first grade. And the salacious nature of their shape makes it virtually impossible to eat them in mixed company. It's time for a change. It's time for the delicious, sweet, non-threateningly shaped mango. Mangoes. We've been here all along. Waiting. Paid for by the committee to get mangoes in your face hole. Our next guest picked up all of her bluegrass and folk influences living in Julian, California. She studied at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy in Los Angeles and went to open mics to try out her songs and alleviate a little of her stage fright. She's now a proud resident of the Pacific Northwest, having released her first album, Through the Music Box, which cemented her spot in the indie pop scene. Her most recent record is Jacob. Please welcome Ezra Rose to Livewire. I'll draw you breakfast, I'll draw you juice I'll draw you a smile and I won't miss a tooth I'll make you toaster, black corn in the wall Cayenne pepper, 
That was Ezra Rose. Her most recent album is Jacob. If you live in the Portland area, she will be performing as part of the Siren Music Festival. More information at sirennation.org. Clyde Baxter with you for Cycling Weekly, your premier cycling news and talk show. And what a trying month it has been for the cycling world. With me, as always, acclaimed cycling expert, Margaret Shipley. A truly captivating and unfortunate time as seven-time Tour de France winner Lance Armstrong has officially been stripped of all his titles due to doping. Unbelievable turn of events for one of cycling's greats. But the spokes must turn. Yes, the spokes must turn, and determining the true winner of those seven Tour de France titles has taken top priority by the UCI. And a grueling task it has been these past few weeks, as nearly a hundred samples taken from runners-up have revealed steroid use. It looks like not only Armstrong, but every single Tour de France competitor was also taking performance-enhancing drugs. Well, not every competitor, Margaret. The UCI is reporting now that American Larry Berman, who rode stage four of 2006 tour, has been declared the default winner. And joining us now is the champion himself, live via satellite from his backyard in Racing, Wisconsin. Larry, are you there? Oh, hi, guys. Uh, how you doing over there? Fine, Larry, and congratulations, sir. When did you first hear the announcement from the International Cycling Union? Well, two days ago, I was draining the above-ground pool, and I look over, and there's my wife, Joni, on the deck there, just hollering and waving the phone. <laughs> That's when they let me know I was the champ. Larry, can you tell us about the race itself back in 2006? Well, the missus dragged me on this Cabernet getaway for our anniversary. Uh, two weeks, uh, nothing but wine and cheese. Oh, that'll do a number on your plumbing. <laughs> Anywho, uh, we go out for a Sunday bike ride and boom, run right into the Tour de France. So you, you weren't registered officially? Nah, I just got tired of waiting for those clowns to pass, so I hopped a guardrail with my bike, then got stuck in the middle of it. Had to ride my bike downhill a mile or two just to be able to find a way out. And it was that mile or two that qualified you as a competitor. As officials have stated, you were the only clean sample they have on record. You know, I, I thought it was a little weird when a bunch of guys in lab coats ran up to me, made me pee in a cup, but uh, I just figured it was some kind of French custom. That, and it proved to be steroid-free. Yeah, I told them I had a bottle and a half of Pinot for lunch, but they said that was pretty much normal. And, 
So, what kind of cycling experience did you have prior to the tour? Oh, let's see. Uh, well, we got an exercise bike from Sears in the garage, uh, but uh, I think one of the pedals came off. I don't know. I haven't checked on it in a couple of months. Not exactly the pedigree of a top racer, but nonetheless, you are the new champion. How do you think this will change your life, Larry? Well, I did change the name on my business. We used to be Berman Concrete and Flooring. And now we're 2006 Tour de France champion Larry Berman Concrete and Flooring. <laughs> Got a nice ring to it, don't you think? Indeed. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. We look forward to seeing you defend your title in July. Oh, yeah, about that. Uh, not sure going to make it. Uh, we got a reunion down in Peoria. The kids keep bugging, bugging me about Six Flags, and uh, I, I got this saddle sore that looks like a smushed tomato. <laughs> Bicycling through some uh, hills probably ain't too bright an idea. Well, we hope you reconsider. Thank you for taking this time to speak with us today. Oh, you betcha. After the break, we'll talk with 10-year-old BMX enthusiast Brady Jenner, who will tell us which brand of baseball cards he prefers in his spokes. This is Cycling Weekly. That was Ryan McCluskey, Trisha Ferguson, and Chris Harder. You're listening to Livewire, and if you just tuned in, that's unfortunate, because you have just missed the first ever performance of the French radio dance troupe Cet Incroyablement Malévisé, which translates loosely to... This is incredibly ill-advised. But there's still more to come. Stick around for filmmaker Shell White, Springsteen biographer Peter Carlin, music from Matthew Friedberger, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. Our next guest started his film career in 1986, and in 1991, he started working in visual effects on the first of five Gus Van Zandt films, including My Own Private Idaho, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, and Milk. He has directed 13 short films, including two shorts for SNL's TV Funhouse, a painful glimpse into my writing process in less than 60 seconds, and Wind, a documentary about climate change that premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival with keynote speaker Al Gore. This year, the Northwest Filmmakers Festival, taking place from November 10th to 18th, is featuring a viewing of his latest. It's a new experimental music video for David Lynch and Christabel called Bird of Flames. His first feature film, Bucksville, will be released in spring of 2013. Please welcome Shell White to Livewire. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Shell. Oh, thank you so much. It's yeah, great to it's have a pleasure you here. to be here. It's a great show. So, I wanted to just talk briefly. Um, I mean, you've been working in film for since 1986, and I just wanted to talk uh, briefly about what got you interested. You sort of you started your first job was an, was as an animator. Were you um, specifically interested yeah. in animation? Well, actually, my film interest goes way back to when I was in high school, and. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was a painter, and I was interested in animation and photography. But, you know, when I think of my influence, it goes back even further than that. And uh, it was uh, when I was in fourth and fifth grade, I loved to go to the Art Institute of Chicago, and in particular, the uh, Surrealist Wing of the museum. And there was something about just the, the vibe of that and the, the kind of dream-connected subconscious and the weird, strange beautifulness of it. You know, it was the Salvador Dali paintings, the Yves Tanguy and the Max Ernst and the Magritte paintings. They all seemed to kind of speak to me in some way. It was actually kind of funny because um, 
other kids my age would have uh, pictures of baseball players and, and racing cars, and I had Salvador Dali prints with twisted faces and burning giraffes and so forth. So it was art initially, and then yeah. how did that move into film for you? Well, so it was the sensibility of the surrealist and the connection with dreams that really got me thinking, and it's something I've come back to in my work again and again. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of through animation. Well, and, and you've done a lot of stop-motion animation, right. and you co-founded yeah. Bent Image Labs, and, and you do a lot of stop-motion there. You also do a little bit of, uh, of live-action as yeah. well. visual effects and CG, and, yeah. Yeah, and in 2005, you directed a video for Tom York, uh, and it was for Harrow Downhill. Right. And you won Best Music Video at South by Southwest that year mm-hmm. for that. And mm-hmm. you actually, for the video itself, um, you created a new technique mm-hmm. called small gantics for that video. That's right. That's Can you right. talk about what those are? Um, well, small gantics is a, basically, it's a technique of taking uh, live action, you know, landscape images and turning them into what looks like a miniature. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever look at macro images of, you know, bumblebees or flowers or, or model trains, the properties of the lens create, uh, you know, a sharpness in the, in the subject, but it falls off rather quickly as you go into the background. Well, basically, the small gantics technique um, does that, and it creates an amazing illusion where your eye just says, oh, that's miniature, even if your mind says, oh, no, that's New York City, but with the sky and the, and the sea. Right. I want to point out that we didn't invent it, that it's been something that's been, you know, photographers have used uh, what's called uh, tilt-shift lenses for quite a while, and they've, you know, so they've been around for at least two decades. But we had never seen it in motion, and uh, so that's what really got us going. And we wanted to do it in a digital way that would give us more flexibility, more control, and more kind of nuance to it. Well, and it's, it's used stunningly in the Tom York oh, video. You. And you can see the video. It's on, it's on Vimeo. So you're also, they're screening this David Lynch yeah. video that yeah. you have done at the Northwest Filmmakers Festival. And this is for a song that David Lynch and Christabel uh, wrote mm-hmm. together. Right, right. Uh, David Lynch has produced this record. Mm-hmm. The song is called Bird of Flames, and I'd like to just play a little bit of the song. that sounded like a David Lynch song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, and yeah. that was him talking. That was David Lynch yeah. uh, speaking that you heard. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what was it like to direct a video for another director, especially someone like David Lynch, who has such a style mm-hmm. of his own? Well, um, you know, it was interesting because David Lynch pretty much gave me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted. He had seen... Um, a, he had seen the Tom York music video and you know, thought I was competent enough. And Krista Bell, same deal. She kind of ran it because um, you know, I worked with her closely on it. And um, you know, I just think that we have a similar sensibility. And so it felt very easy to, to do it. And you know, I'll tell you a little bit of background on it. Um, so I have this producer friend that contacted me and said, hey, um, I'm working with David Lynch and the singer, Krista Bell. They've got an album coming out. Would you like to do the first, uh, first video for it? And I said, sure. So they sent me the song. And as you can hear, it's kind of divided into two halves. And I started thinking about it. And I get a lot of what I call 4 o'clock in the morning ideas that are kind of this blend of subconscious and conscious thinking. 
And uh, so I tried to think about where this should take place. Then I thought of like a smoky nightclub where, you know, there's all these good-looking young people and it's just this kind of place that you want to be. And uh, and there's this strange uh, dancer who's moving like a spider and he's moving and there's this egg-shaped cocoon thing on the stage and out comes a figure and it's Krista Bell and she's beautiful and sexy and she steps into the light and she starts to move and it's like a doll that's mechanical, like a robot. And then out in the audience is a young man who looks just like Elvis and... He's falling in love with her image that's sort of feminine beauty goddess. And so for me, there's a lot of imagery that came from listening to the song. And my takeaway was that it's about the enigmatic nature of love. There you go. That's what I got from it, too. So, but a lot of kind of, you know, dream images that came in and just letting the imagination go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of it, too, was... The very first lyrics are, coming into a dark world, love is a bird of flames. And that just set my imagination going, you know. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Livewire Radio, and we're talking to Shell White about uh, his video for, for Bird of Flame. Um, it, the whole thing feels incredibly surreal. The, they're, they're in this nightclub, and the walls are sort of covered in glitter, and it feels almost like it's under the sea at the same time. But also some of her movements, it, feel, it felt to me, I know that you have a history in stop-motion animation, and it almost, she seemed almost like a stop-motion puppet. To me, how yeah. how did that the way that she was moving was very jerky. Mm-hmm. Is, what's how does that technique work? Well, it was um, it was almost stop motion. It was very slow frame rates, um, but I wanted to create something that was sort of hard to distinguish what it was exactly, somewhere between live action and animation, and I wanted her to just be like this doll, you know, that moved in a way that was sort of stilted but still beautiful. Well, the video is is gorgeous, and I think that you can you can you can see it online at Christabel's website as well. At um, this point, I think so, but probably the best place is YouTube or Vimeo. And um, if you're in Portland, you can see it at the Northwest Film Center right. next week. Um, I yeah. wanted to talk briefly about um, Bucksville. Bucksville is a is a feature film mm-hmm. that you That's have right. coming out. Can you talk about that a little uh, bit? Yeah, it's something that um, I developed with my creative partner Laura McGee. And we co-wrote the script, and uh, it was based on a dream I had. And uh, she was one of the producers, and I directed it. And it's basically a story about a young man growing up in a small town, and he's kind of born into this, this group. They're like a radical militia, and uh, they're involved in this weird sort of ethical cleansing, I guess you could call it, where they're avenging the innocent and uh, punishing the guilty, the guilty that they see have fallen through the cracks of the justice system. And so this guy, this young man, his name is Presley, and he's um, caught up in this thing, and he begins to realize that it's kind of messed up. And, uh, and he has this epiphany of conscience. But, you know, this is his life, and he's grown yeah. up in this thing, and you don't leave groups like that. They're secret brotherhoods. So it's about his struggle to get out exactly, of this yeah. Yeah. So, and when can people start looking for that? Well, um, it should be out in the spring of 2013. Great. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Again, um, if you're interested in seeing the video, you can see it in Portland at the Northwest Filmmakers Festival. Thank you so much for joining us. Shell White, everybody. That was Shell White, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets. Thanksgiving is coming up. Every second brings it closer. By the time you finish listening to this, it may be Easter. (laughs) Whole Foods Market has organic and heritage turkeys that they'll brine for you as the time between the holidays whizzes past. More information about Whole Foods turkeys and the nature of time can be found on the Internet. The turkey part will be at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Chairs. They've been pretty vocal these past few months about their ability to bear the weight of a human body in a seated position. But what do we really know about chairs? They can't seem to make up their mind about what they are. Are they soft and cushy or hard and uncomfortable? Some of them are so wishy-washy that they actually fold under pressure. Do not trust these shapeshifters. 
If you're interested in being in a dependably comfortable seated position, trust couches. Couches have been bearing your weight for generations. They never complain, and they sometimes even give back to the community in the form of loose change and forgotten M&Ms. Couches, because seriously, screw chairs. Paid for by your couch, who's never like your chairs. You're listening to Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, offering a comprehensive line of ergonomic work furniture. Their sit-stand desk help keep your blood flowing and your core involved while you power through all those YouTube videos of fireworks going off in places fireworks are not supposed to go off in. Information from the healthy sitting experts can be found at ergodepot.com. Our next guest doesn't take music fandom lightly. If Peter Ames Carlin likes your music, he's more likely than not to write a book about your life. He's the New York Times best-selling author of Catch a Wave, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson, and Paul McCartney, A Life. In 1978, he saw Bruce Springsteen in Seattle on the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour and sparked an interest that turned into Carlin's third musician biography, Bruce. He spent a year and a half writing the book before he received a call from Bruce's manager and was offered something none of the other ten previous biographers have had, access to the very private boss himself. He spent the next year talking to members of Springsteen's family, friends, band members, an ex-wife, and of course Bruce, to create what's been called the definitive Bruce Springsteen biography. Please welcome Peter Carlin to Livewire. When I pulled up to the curb in front of him, Bruce Springsteen cocked his head for one of those are-you-the-guy looks, and when I waved back, he smiled. We shook hands on the sidewalk, and I followed him to the kitchen door at the back of his Aunt Dora's house. Later, after I chatted with Dora and went out for pizza with Bruce, we were back on the sidewalk making plans to meet again the next day. Now I gotta give you the Jersey hug, he said. He threw his arms over my shoulders, I thumped his trapeze eye in turn, and for a moment it was like, how did this happen? Actually, I already knew that. I'd spent the last two years researching and writing a biography that until that day had not included any input from its subject. So in that moment, my brain whirled like a macro processor, determined to take in, analyze, and cross-reference every microscopic element of the moment. Not just how he spoke and stood, but also the content and subtext of his words and movements. What was he doing here, really? I needed to interpret everything and anticipate how I could incorporate it into a book manuscript that was already two weeks overdue. I had a lot to think about, and nearly all of it springing directly from the evening of December 20th, 1978, when I saw Springsteen tear into the opening bars of Badlands in the smoky dark of the Seattle Center Arena. I was a sophomore in high school, 15 years old and chubby, with no real sense of the grown-up world, let alone my place in it. But when that 29-year-old guitarist confronted the microphone with proclamations about trouble in the heartland and a head-on collision happening in his guts, man, I heard something so raw and unrelenting I knew it had to be the truth, and that somewhere down the road, he described, I'd find my own future. I said, roll down the window and let the wind roll back your hair. Well, the next bus to open these two lanes will take us anywhere. When we left Aunt Dora's house, Bruce took me to Federici's on Freehold's Main Street and introduced me to his buddies at the bar. He took the leftover slice they urged him to have and pointed the way to a back table where beers and shots of tequila quickly appeared. A pizza came next, and when the time came to leave, he snatched the check. My town, my money, he explained. When I got into my rental car, he checked rush hour traffic on Main and instructed me to follow him on the secret back way out of Freehold. When a traffic light separated us, he pulled over, 
dialed my cell phone and told me where he was waiting to lead me home. He picked me up at my hotel the next morning and took me to his property in Colts Neck, just a few miles east of Freehold. We talked without interruption for four hours, and then went up the road so he could play the songs he had recorded for his new album. When we got to the studio, Springsteen led the way to the control board, where two sets of lyrics sat in front of a couple chairs. After apologizing in advance for the volume, musicians like their music loud. He nodded to the engineer, cueing the tribal drums that herald the start of We Take Care of Our Own. Next came Easy Money, then Shackled and Drawn, then an electrified studio take of American Land. I listened and read along on the lyric sheet. But mostly I watched Bruce listen to his own work. I saw him nod to the beat, then abruptly stop, cocking his ear and giving a tiny twist to a knob just to make it all sound slightly more perfect. So let's think again of that 15-year-old kid back in 1978. Or let's forget him entirely and think about anyone who gets the opportunity to hang with a childhood hero. It's dreamy, crazy dreamy. The beer and the pizza, the tequila shots, the endless conversations, the in-studio preview of the not-quite-finished album. For months, Springsteen's friends had said the same thing about what he was like in person. He's pretty much exactly who you think he is. But of course, who we think Bruce Springsteen is springs entirely from Bruce Springsteen's own vision of who he is or who he wants people to think he is. So tell me what I see When I look in your eyes Is that you, baby Or just a brilliant disguise Just around the corner from Aunt Dora's house on McLean Street lies an empty lot that once held the house where Springsteen spent his earliest years living with a manic-depressive father whose illness made consistent employment an impossibility. Bruce's mother worked as a secretary, but the family was poor and mainstream society unsympathetic. Viewed generally as a loser, the teenage Bruce kept to himself until rock and roll sent him reeling. When he picked up a guitar, Bruce was transformed and has spent the rest of his life remembering that magic and forever finding ways to recreate it in bigger and better ways. And so the light young singer took on the muscles and poise of a superhero. He became a global icon, then something like a national monument. And when he bumped into a friend of mine during his 2008 tour, and the guy requested an extremely obscure 25-year-old outtake, Springsteen stopped the next night's concert in its tracks to tell everyone about how he'd met this guy who had asked for a song the band had never even considered performing live. Until that moment, of course, when he dedicated the world premiere of None But The Brave to my buddy. The guy's feet didn't hit the ground for six months after that, but when I asked Bruce what the moment had meant to him, he said he didn't even remember it. I do that all the time, man, he said. That's my job. I make miracles happen. And you know what? It is a job. A labor-centric job. And as the next months passed, I saw Springsteen run his band through military precise rehearsals. I saw him have a temper tantrum aimed at a spotlight operator who wasn't even at work yet, and saw his face go white when I asked the wrong question at the wrong time. Sometimes I wondered how much of it all was artifice. I recalled his displays of ego and impatience, and suspected that maybe I'd learned too much about this guy who had once seemed so heroic to me. Yeah, but then the house lights would go down, and I'd be in the audience and see it all happening again. The one-time loser born anew, the teenage loser finding his feet, the screwed-up guitar player who for all the world is standing, playing, and singing, and being exactly who he so desperately needed to be.
That's Casey Neal on the guitar, Jim Brunberg on the piano. Thanks. Peter Carlin, Jim Brunberg, and Casey Neal. Welcome, Peter. Uh, obviously, there, there were some parts of that story in the book, and um, there, there were some incredibly sweet stories about him. A lot of stories about him working so hard to get things exactly right in the studio that Steve Van Zant, you know, quit, and uh, he drove Clarence Clemens crazy. Um, what was it in him that made him want things to be so perfect? He's a control freak. He grew up in a very unstable home um, and felt, uh, uh, you know, grew up with the sense that absolutely nothing could be controlled until he picked up the guitar. And that was his ticket toward not only being able to find some vision of himself that felt right and true and, and perfect, but also keep things rolling in exactly the way he wanted them to go. Well, what I mean, there there was also a story where he was watching the Beatles on television, and he just said, "I don't want to be famous like that. They don't have any friends." Yeah. And yet, he had to have a drive to be famous in order to for this to have happened, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, if thirty years of therapy have done anything, it's make the man very comfortable with his own paradoxes. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and so, on the one hand, he's this completely, you know, he's this this determined artist who will never sacrifice anything. For his art, but on the other hand, he's also had to come to terms with the idea that he's like super into being the biggest rock and roll star in the world. Yeah, and yeah. that took him a long time to get to that place. And when he did, it was with a vengeance, if you remember, in the mid '80s. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, so he's and obviously he's he's walked the balance since then. Well, and there's also there's an incredibly sweet story in the book about um, Bruce going to see Stardust Memories by himself. Can you talk about that story? Yeah, yeah. You know, he um, it was a tour in 1980, and he was hanging out by himself uh, one day. He was a loner, man. Even back in the days when he was the biggest rock star, you know, uh, one of the bigger rock stars on the planet, and he went out to see a movie by himself, and uh, was sitting there eating his popcorn, and this this kid just walked up and saw him there, this high school guy, and and said, um, you know, could I, could I sit with you? And he said, yeah, sure. Could I bring my sister? Well, yeah. So they saw this Woody Allen movie, which, of course, is a huge takedown of the whole idea of fame, where the fans are like these monstrous sort of Bergman-esque creatures. And so yeah. this kid, you know, as the story goes, the lights came up, and he was looking a little unsettled, and he goes, is that what it's like? And Bruce said, no, it's not like that at all. You know, I, I like this. And the guy goes, well, you want to come home and meet my parents? <laughs> And he said, okay, you know, the guy's got nowhere to go till yeah. tomorrow night when he's playing at, you know, the 20,000-seat basketball arena. So, they, they, you know, they hop in the car, and they drive over to the guy's parents' house, and they have one of those, you know, look who I got here. And they were like, <laughs> they were like no. And he ran, literally ran to his room and got the copy of The River, which had a big picture of Bruce on it. And yeah. it was just like, see? <laughs> and then it was like... So, you know, they made dinner, they sat around, they talked till like 2, 3 in the morning, and, uh, you know, that's just how the guy is. Well, and he says something interesting in the book about how in the first 10 minutes, he gets people's entire life and probably more than their best friend or their family mm -hmm. know about them. Is that him or is it just fame? I mean, is he that kind of guy? Well, he takes the fame and is actually interested in other people. And so when he gets into that situation, and that was more, you know, when, when I wrote about that in the book, it, it occurred to me that, especially in that time in his life, that was symptom, uh, symptomatic of, of a problem. The guy had an intimacy problem. So he sort of, in order to sort of, to, to, to have a kind of relationship or have the sort of feeling of getting to know somebody, he would be on his star pedestal and spend a couple hours with you and never see you again, you know? Mm. I mean, that kid and his family got tickets and they still do, you know, yeah. <laughs> whenever they come to town. It's like they just write in and, and John Landell sends them whatever they need. Wow. But, uh, but at the time, it seemed more kind of pathological to me. Well, you also talk in the book about, and I didn't realize that he had struggled with depression for quite no. a while. And then in 2003, he went on antidepressants and had one of the most productive periods of his professional life. And you are a fan did you notice a difference in his music after 2003, after that happened? No, no, just that there was a whole lot more of it. 
A creation, you know, uh, composing and creating had never been his problem. His problem was having the confidence in the finished work to bring it out. Mm-hmm. So this guy has got, I mean, he could uh, lose his voice and his fingers tomorrow and there would be new Bruce Springsteen records for 30 years because every time he makes a record, he's actually making three records. And then the other ones just go into the vault. Yeah, because it's so ridiculously productive. Yeah. 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 So, you know, he developed a sense of confidence. And I, and I think also his, his, his personal life must have uh, become that much more pleasant from day sure. to day. Because yeah. yeah. as, as, as it turns out, the boy has demons. Mm-hmm. He's definitely, he's unquestionably an icon. He's mm-hmm. just one of those, you know, there's, there's a few American icons. He's one of them. What, why do you believe that he has that role? Because he desperately needed to become one. Because it was a lot easier than being him. Yeah. Because when you look at somebody like that, and that was the point that I was struggling around with in the story I just read, you know, in the same way that people invest themselves or project themselves into these people who, you know, celebrities or stars or writers or artists who seem to connect with them in some way, um, that person themselves is covering for some emptiness in themselves that they desperately need to, to fill with the affirmation of an audience. And you can see the way Bruce works the crowd and, 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 and the way that he just would sort of, especially in the early years, almost crucify himself on the microphone. You know, I'm a prisoner of rock and roll, he'd scream after three and a half, four hours. Yeah. And it was like they had to carry him off. And there was no joke about it. I mean, it was all, because as he said later, he goes, I had nowhere else to go. He had no life. You know, that was everything on stage. Yeah. Well, and he also, there's a quote where he says, I want to give people something perfect that they exactly. can't get anywhere else in their life. And the book is, the book is amazing. Um, Thank you. Uh, the book is Bruce, a biography of Bruce Springsteen, the author Peter Ames Carlin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Peter Ames Carlin, and you're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that's really looking forward to the next project of the guy who directs those five-hour energy commercials. We'll be right back. It claims to play a vital role in blood filtration. It claims to metabolize hemoglobin. It claims to turn monocytes into dendritic cells to promote tissue healing. But does it really? If the spleen was so important to blood filtering, then how do so many people survive after a complete splenectomy? The real heroes of blood filtration are, of course, your kidneys. Kidneys have been removing waste from your blood and diverting them to your bladder for your entire life. So don't be fooled by blood filtration fakers. Trust your kidneys and tell your spleen to go to hell. Paid for by your kidneys. Hi, I'm Sherry Michael for Science Today. In January of this year, scientists in Indonesia accidentally happened upon three monkeys known as Miller's Grizzled Lemurs. 
This extremely rare monkey has been presumed extinct since 2005. Since then, over 10 more species have been rediscovered. Here to talk about this trend is Dr. Andrew Dowd from the Council for Extinction Monitoring and Study. Dr. Dowd, welcome. Hi, Carrie. It's Sherry. Dr. Dowd, you called the inability to keep track of the lemurs an honest mistake, but there's been a rash of rediscoveries. How do you explain that? Oh, well, to be perfectly honest with you, Mary, we blew it. <laughs> we sure blew this one. This one? Yeah, you know, with the animals. Well, that's all your group does is keep track of animals. So you can see why we didn't want this to come out. But when one of those damn lemurs bellies up to the bar at Club Med in Jakarta, brother, the jig is up. <laughs> okay. Um, I have just a partial list here of animals. Turns out the Chinese river dolphin isn't extinct after all. How did you miss a school of 80 in the Yangtze River? Barry, Sherry. I went over there to, you know, China. Let's just say one thing led to another, and I had to get a blood transfusion. Blacked out. Woke up in Cambodia. Never buy blood from a Chinese guy with a Greek last name. I have no idea what that means. Um, how about the Barbary lion? Have you ever been to the Barbary Coast, Terry? Sherry. Well, then you've never had to identify anything after half a dozen Mai Tais. And let me tell you, it ain't easy. Everything looks like a lion. Everything. Okay. Well, what about the South American red-backed gorilla? Have you ever met one of those things? They're complete jerks. And I, for one, do my best to avoid them, Jerry. It's Sherry. Dr. Dow. Look, Marvin. Really? Do you know how much red tape is involved in rediscovering a species? I'm talking about months of research and vetting and 500-page field reports. Now multiply that by 50. Oh, I thought there were only 10. Or 10. Multiply it by 10 and you have some idea of what we're dealing with. See no evil. That's our motto. Your motto is we keep track of which animals are extinct and which are not. Okay, it's our unofficial motto. Okay, fine. Well, what about the hula-painted frog? I was planning my destination wedding in Bali, and also I was drunk. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we return, we'll get reaction from scientists, including Jane Goodall, who will be live in the studio. What? Jane Goodall is here? I gotta go. I borrowed a couple of hundred rupees from her, and I haven't paid her back. She carries a pig sticker that if she stabs you, the wound never heals. Is there a back way out of here, Barry? That was Trisha Ferguson and Ryan McCluskey. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Ezra Rose. September 
As I said at the beginning of the show, Scott Poole, our house poet, he's been eyeing the show like Ted Nugent eyes a 10-point buck, <laughs> which is to say carefully and mildly predatorially. And he is on stage right now to tell us uh, everything that he has gleaned from the hour. So please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole I Learned Tonight Is our most happy moment the one when our hero acts like it's no big thing to see us? Don't we all wish we would think it's no big deal either? Don't we wish that the whole event would be rather casual like jumping into the Tour de France after two bottles of wine and everyone is so whacked on dope that you end up finding out you won 15 years later? Or casual, like a dinner with Superman, perhaps. Hi, Superman, come on in. Can I put your cape in the closet? Come on in. Oh, boy, was, was that you? Woo! Did, did you just superflatulate? Can you just, like, super blow that out? Woo! Would you like a salaciously shaped banana or just a nice mango to settle your super stomach, Soupy? If you can say salaciously shaped banana in front of your hero and still smile after they just blew a lunch fog over you that smells like a Chinese river dolphin, you might even play the ukulele. Even though you've never played the ukulele, like Shell White, you might want to make a surreal movie out of it that feels like a comfy overstuffed couch in Aunt Dora's house. A couch Bruce Springsteen is jumping off the back of strumming an epic electric E while he crashes onto the coffee table, exploding it into bits, destroying your TV and part of your spleen. Wouldn't you just love to see the Bruce while you're bleeding to death? Give me a jersey hug, you. Aunt Dora's gonna be wicked pissed. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Shell White, Peter Ames Carlin, Matthew Friedberger, and Ezra Rose. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hameister, performers Ryan McCluskey, Chris Harger, and Trisha Ferguson, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, and Frayne Masters. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauck. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. 
Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Von Drele. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.